All right, well, um, I'm thankful to be able to teach Sunday school today. I was not planning on doing this. Um, apparently, there were, with Reverend Tedrick being gone, there were a lot of moving pieces about who was going to do Sunday school that they were trying to keep off of my plate so that I didn't have to worry about it. But then Friday, when I had lunch with him, he said, well, we still haven't really figured it out, so thank you. Okay. So uh, would you be willing to do something? So I said, I don't know that you're trying to keep it from me to protect me has helped me now in this week. But um, as we were preparing for uh, ordaining our office bearers, you know, part of what we have them do is come up and sign the form of subscription. And I was thinking we talk about it in our form. They come up and do it before us. um, But we don't often have an opportunity to really talk about what is that form, what does subscription mean, Um, the pressing questions that are on your mind for practical life. Um, But I thought for the life of the church and for the history of the church, it would be helpful for us to be aware of the history that subscription has among us and that what we saw done today is something that's been done for centuries by our office bearers and has really helped the church maintain a certain amount of uh, orthodoxy. And it's been when our office bearers compromise on Um, this commitment to confessional orthodoxy that our churches really suffer. Um, And so I thought that because we have the form of subscription, we refer to the form of subscription, but we didn't have a particular opportunity to really talk about it and its importance in the life of our churches, uh, that this would be a good opportunity for us to do that. Um, So the form of subscription is in in our books, And it's something that we have had a long history of in our Dutch Reformed churches of protecting the the orthodoxy of the church by making sure that all of our officers agree that everything in our three forms of unity, we agree with them because we believe they agree with the word of God. And that all of us commit to those standards as the operational standards of the church. Um, My dad wrote an article on this that's very helpful. Not a lot of people are going to sit down and write articles on the history of Dutch Reform subscription. He's one of the weird ones who do. Um, so I'm going to lean heavily on a chapter he wrote on this. But one of the things that he points out at the beginning of that chapter is that there were a lot of moral reform movements in the church in the Middle Ages where it was recognized the church is not as moral as it should be, the church is not as spiritual as it should be. And so were there those kinds of reforming movements were going on in the life of the church leading up to, can you see this over there? Um, leading, up, okay. um, leading up to the Protestant Reformation. But when the Protestant Reformation came along, it was primarily a doctrinal reformation. Now that doesn't mean that we're not concerned with morality. <laughs> That's not the message that I want to point to. But the, the, the Reformation was primarily about reforming the doctrine of the church, where it had compromised the truth of what God's word taught. And as a result of the doctrinal changes in the church, the church was actually renewed morally and spiritually. And so even though the Reformation was primarily a doctrinal reform, it led to the moral and spiritual reformation of the church as well. Um, And he starts there because he points out that's an important thing to think about in light of what people might often say about our commitments to doctrine. Uh, Maybe you remember joining the church and thinking, oh man, there's a whole list of stuff you've got to know, and am I going to be grilled trying to join the church, and how am I going to understand all this stuff, and this is all new to me. Um, And there are people who would say, you know, we don't have a church like that. 
We're not the kinds of people who our religion's all in our head. It's in our hearts. We're more concerned about deeds than we are about creeds. Um, And I think it's coming from a genuine desire to be moral, to be spiritual. But what it disconnects is the importance that true doctrine plays in being moral and spiritual. That if you don't know what the Word of God teaches... You really don't know how to be moral and spiritual in a way that's God-pleasing. And that was really what was accomplished by the Reformation. And that's why in in our church family history, so you are all in the Dutch Reformed church family history. Whether you are 100% Dutch, whether you are 0% Dutch, whether you like it or not, you're part of the Dutch Reformed tradition in in this church. That's our family tree. And one of the things we've seen over and over again in the history of our family is the more committed we are to our doctrinal truths, the more healthy our churches have been. And where we have declined in our commitment to our doctrinal truths is where the church has declined. Um, And that we can learn a lot from that to say we want to be a moral and spiritual church, but if we abandon our doctrine, if we abandon the truth as we understand it and as is expressed in the confessions, then we're going to lose what we want to be which is a church that's doctrinally sound, morally sound, spiritually sound, and really ultimately God-honoring. We cannot abandon our doctrinal commitments. And so we often talk about the fact that our only standard that has absolute authority is the Word of God. And we often refer to our confessions as secondary standards. We, we call them secondary standards sometimes to remind ourselves that God's word is the only primary standard. And we believe in our confessional standards because we believe that they fully agree with the word of God. We subscribe to them because we believe that they are accurate representations of what we find in God's word. Um, but we recognize that the word of God is the only standard. Um, and, the, and our confessions are secondary sources that help us to accurately summarize what we find in God's word. And so from the very beginning of, the chur- of our churches in the Dutch Reformed tradition, office bearers were required to subscribe to our confessional standards, meaning they had to say before the Lord and before his people, I agree that our confessional standards are true because they agree with the word of God. Because they agree with the word of God, I subscribe to them. Um, And that is my commitment. And that commitment by by Dutch Reformed office bearers goes all the way back to really the first national synod um, that was held in uh, 1571. Now, one of the things that we have to know about our family of churches is that they are a family of churches that were really born in the midst of persecution. Uh, The Dutch Reformed church had... It made its first official gathering in 1571 while it was still an illegal religion, while they were still under the persecution um, of Roman Catholic Spain. Um, This was hard for them to do, to get together, to to bring the churches together because of the the status of the persecution in the church. You may remember um, that Guido de Bray wrote the Belgic Confession in 1561 and was martyred, um, was executed, was hanged for preaching the word of God and for administering communion to a reformed congregation. Uh, One of the charges for which he was hanged was giving communion to the congregation. Um, And so he wrote the Belgian Confession in 1561. And in 1571, the first 
um, the first national synod of the Dutch Reformed churches was convened to decide what they, what they should do. And one of the first things they did was express their unity by subscribing to the Belgic Confession. Um, and so one of the things that all of them did was say, we agree that the Belgic Confession fully agrees with the Word of God. Um, and this is a, is, a, is a form that unites us as people. So if you ever wonder why we call our confessional standards the three forms of unity... It's because of this commitment to subscription that these are the forms that unite God's people. Now, at this time in 1571, not everyone was using the Heidelberg Catechism yet. It was a newfangled catechism that everybody was trying out. Um, So not every church had settled on this. The, The Reformed churches would later adopt the Heidelberg Catechism of the Reformed churches as its official catechism, and then it became the second form of unity, And then at the Synod of Dort, when they adopted the Canons of Dort as understandings of our doctrine, that was the third form of unity that people would also subscribe to. Um, So in the history of our churches, this subscription began in 1571 um, of ministers getting together and when they got together saying, we all agree to this doctrine. And when they appointed elders and deacons saying, we all agree to this doctrine. We believe in this because we believe this accurately summarizes what we find in God's word. Um, So this first synod in Emden in 1571 said, To testify to the unity in doctrine among the Dutch churches, it seemed good to the brothers to subscribe to the confession of the Dutch churches, which is the Belgic Confession. So within 10 years, that had become the standard of the Dutch churches and their rule for faith. Um, And one of the things that they did not permit was for you to take an exception. You had to believe that the whole thing was an accurate summary of the Word of God, that it fully agrees with it. You couldn't say, I agree with this part or I don't agree with that part. You had to look at the Belgian Confession and say, we fully agree that this summarizes what we find taught in God's Word. We're committing ourselves to this by way of our subscription. We're committing that this is the doctrine of our church. And so the form of subscription that we use today, which is on page 93 of the Forms and Prayers book, is actually the form of subscription that was established by the Synod of Dort in 1618, 1619. So this is a form that dates back to then, uh, the form we use. Now, the, up, the language has been updated. We don't still require people to sign it in Dutch. Um, that seems counterproductive today for us. Um, but it's essentially the same language. It's been a little modernized and translated, but it's the same language that they would have signed in 1516 and 1518 that they required ministers to sign who became preachers, teachers in the church, ministering to the sick. You were required to sign the form of subscription. Um, And so this form that we have here and what we witnessed our office bearers do today has lived in the life of our churches for over 450 years. Um, The practice of subscription is that old. Don't don't criticize my math. I know what you're all thinking. This is only 400 years. Um, I know. The, the actual form is only about 400 years old, but the practice goes all the way back to the beginning of the churches. And even though the elders and deacons were not required to sign originally, they all had to subscribe and say, we believe that our standards fully summarize what God's word teaches, and we're committed to those standards. And so, you know, sometimes we... we we hear people who will say, well, I want to go to these other churches because they have this great sense of history. They have all these things going on. This is as old as almost anything you find in the Roman Catholic Church today. 
Um, the Roman Catholic Church today is essentially a medieval church. Um, essentially that era. Their practice is today what they, is not what they say it is. Going back to the time of the apostles, that's not, that's not true. Um, so we have a historical practice um, of doing this, of having this. And, and when that's been followed, when people have committed to it and stuck by their commitments, the church has always been the most healthy when people have subscribed to the confessions and upheld the doctrine taught in the confessions. Um, we've always been the most healthy as churches. And almost always when the church has compromised its doctrine, it's also followed by compromising the form of subscription. And you can see controversial times in Dutch Reformed Church history where doctrine was failing, and, as a re- and in, in association with that, they tried to change a form of subscription. To say things like, I don't agree with it because I believe it fully agrees with the word of God. I believe it, I'll, I'll subscribe to it insofar as it agrees with the word of God. Well, now who's deciding how far it agrees with the word of God? I am, and I might have a difference of opinion. And you see how that compromises. And in fact, it got so bad in the Dutch Reformed churches that they finally said, All the, thing, the only thing I want you to subscribe to is that you will do what you can to promote the kingdom of Christ, but always promoting the state church. That was essentially all you had to commit to. Um, that's a far cry from what we see in our form of subscription. So I thought because we don't have time to really go through the form of subscription in detail in the worship service, um, I thought we could look at it a little bit in detail together. So if you want to turn with me to page 93 of the Forms and Prayers book, I want to look at this as a historic expression of what our office bearers have been committed to and remain committed to in our churches for the good of the church and for the purity of doctrine. Um, So you can really divide this form that the Synod of Dort came up with into four parts uh, or four elements. Um, The first element we really see in the first paragraph. So the first paragraph of the form of subscription reads, we the undersigned ministers of the gospel, elders, and deacons of the United Reformed Congregation, here it would be of Christ United Reformed Church of the classes of Southwest United States. That's, That's where we are do hereby and sincerely in good conscience before the Lord declare by this our subscription that we heartily believe and are persuaded that all the articles and points of doctrine contained in the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism of the Reformed Churches, together with the explanation of some points of the aforesaid doctrine made by the National Synod of Dortrecht 1618-1619, to do fully agree with the Word of God. So every one of us says... What you find in the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and in the Canons of Dort fully reflects the Word of God, and we are committed to that proposition. That's the first element, is that personal promise by all of our office bearers, uh, that that is our statement of belief, right? Um, we, we believe that these things fully agree with the Word of God, uh, that it's a proper summary of what God's Word teaches us. It's our statement of complete agreement with the three forms. Um, Because they agree with the Word of God, uh, we're committed to them. So that's the first element, is that statement of complete agreement on behalf of the office bearers. The second element we find in that second paragraph. We promise, therefore, diligently to teach and faithfully to defend the aforesaid doctrine without either directly or indirectly contradicting the same by our public preaching, teaching, or writing. 
Now, you can see how this was originally written for ministers and was used for the sake of convenience for elders and deacons. It doesn't mean to say elders and deacons all should be involved in preaching, teaching, and writing. If one of the other officers wants to come up and take the pen and take over from here, I'll let you teach. Um, But if you do, you have to be in complete agreement with what we find in the confessions. So our first promise is that we believe they fully agree, and we promise to teach that doctrine. Because we believe it's a reflection of the Word of God, we promise to teach that and not to do anything that would contradict that teaching. Not to teach anything that would be out of accord with those standards. So the first statement is that we fully agree, these fully agree with the Word of God, and we promise to promote them, um, to teach them positively, and to defend them, um, and to make sure we don't do anything to contradict them in our public teaching. preaching, teaching, or writing. Um, So those are the first two commitments. The third element um, is really in the first half of the third paragraph. We declare, moreover, that we not only reject all errors that militate against this doctrine, and particularly those that were condemned by the above-mentioned synod, but are also disposed to refute and contradict them and to exert ourselves in keeping the church free from such errors. So the first The second element was really to promote them positively. The second element is really to make sure that we teach against and reject anything that would militate against this doctrine. And being that it was the Synod of Dort, what is the doctrine that they are specifically concerned about at that time? What was the false teaching that the Synod of Dort was particularly concerned with? Arminianism, right? So when the Synod says, particularly what do you need to be on your guard against, it's Arminianism. Uh, that's particularly what we are promoted to make or, or committed to making sure we oppose is Arminianism. But any doctrine that's against what we find in, in the three forms of unity, we have a duty to teach and defend against, right? So there's a sort of, the second element is what we're positively to do. The third is more how we are to act in defense of true doctrine and make sure that if false doctrines begin to creep in, we oppose them. We are committed to opposing them. Um, and that, you know, we never want to be as a Reformed church only committed to one or the other. Um, sometimes we can come across to people as we're just the church of no. We like to go around saying, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. You're wrong here. You're wrong there. Um, that's not how we want to be perceived as a church, right? As just always saying where people are wrong. We want to be doing both. We want to be promoting true doctrine, but we also want to be opposing things that would go against the doctrine that we find in God's word. Uh, we are to oppose them. How we oppose them is also directed by God's Word to make sure that we do the right thing in the right way. But that's a commitment we make. Uh, my dad called this part of it a commitment to oppose actively all doctrines that militate against the teachings of the confession. And this commitment is especially focused on protecting the church from Arminianism. So that was the third thing that the church was committed to doing. And the fourth really touches on what happens if something changes in your mind after you've made these promises. Right? Imagine that you have someone who's made promises to do this, and then they come to doubt something in one of the confessions. Uh, say you have a minister who begins to think to himself, I'm not sure limited atonement is right. I'm not sure that is the way we ought to express things in the church. What is my duty if that should come across my mind? Write this down. I'm not questioning it. I believe in the doctrine of limited atonement. But say someone was to do that. What is their obligation? Well, the form of subscription says you have a duty to disclose that 
to your consistory. You may not hold that in secret. And you can't say, well, I just believe it, but I'm not teaching it to anyone, so that's okay. No, if you think anything that's contrary to what's taught in the confessions, you have a duty to disclose that to, to, the, church, to the church so that it can make a ruling on it. And that's really the second part of, of the paragraph three. Um, and if hereafter any, dif- any different, <laughs> if hereafter any difficulties or different sentiments respecting the aforesaid doctrine should arise in our minds, we promise that we will neither publicly nor privately propose or defend the same, either by preaching, teaching, or writing, until we have first revealed such sentiments to the consistory, classis, or synod, that the same may there be examined, being ready always cheerfully to submit to the judgment of the consistory, classis, or synod, under the penalty in case of refusal of being by that very fact suspended from our office. So if I should ever disagree with something I've subscribed to, I have a duty to tell that to the church and to let the church rule on that and to take action on the basis of what I've said. But I may not propose or defend that proposition in any way until the church has had a chance to rule on it. And if I refuse to make my sentiments known or subject myself to their ruling, that action in and of itself would be cause for me to be suspended from my office. And so this is the the duty of saying you can't sneak around thinking things that you don't articulate and cause trouble in the church by doing these things in private and not subjecting themselves to the ruling of the church. In a sense, this is what Jacobus Arminius had done. He had been teaching in his seminary class things where the seminarians were going to their pastors and saying, you know what, we heard something on Romans 7 that sounded really bad. Um, we heard something on Romans 9 that sounded really bad. When Professor Arminius got to Romans 7 and Romans 9, that did not sound orthodox. And then when he was investigated, he made a defense of, no, I'm orthodox. But after he died, they found all kinds of stuff in his desk that showed he wasn't orthodox. And I think what the church was trying to say is, you have a duty to disclose that. You can't hide that. You can't undermine the church by your writing. You have to go and let the, the people that God has ordained to govern the church rule on those things and pass their judgment on them, not just have your own private judgment that you go sharing around. If you turn back on your subscription, you have to disclose that to the church and submit it to their decision. And then you have to accept what the church decides. Um, You always have the right to appeal. We always have a right to appeal the decisions of the assemblies of the church. And even a minister in this situation or elder or deacon would have that same right. But you have to submit it to the decision of the church. And that's what you're committing to, a duty to disclose. And the last thing you give by your subscription is what they called a right to inquisition. That might sound strange, but listen to how they, how they spell that out in the second part of, uh, in the last, really the last paragraph. And further, if at any time the consistory, classes, or synod, upon sufficient grounds of su- suspicion and to preserve the uniformity and purity of doctrine may deem it proper to require of us a further explanation of our sentiments respecting any particular article of the confession of faith, the catechism, or the explanation of the national synod, we do hereby promise to be always willing and ready to comply with such requisition under the above-mentioned penalty, reserving for ourselves, however, the right of appeal in case we should believe ourselves aggrieved by the sentence of the consistory or the classis, and until a decision is made upon such an appeal, we will acquiesce in the determination and judgment 
already passed. What that essentially means is if I preach a sermon and the elders are sitting in the audience and they say to themselves, that sermon sounded anti-limited atonement. That sermon sounded like the minister was denying limited atonement. The consistory then would have the right to inquire of me, what do you think about limited atonement? We don't like the sound of that sermon. Where do you come out on these things? Um, they would have the right to ask that question of me. That's why they called it the right of inquisition. Um, now, you can imagine at the National Synod of Dort, granting a right of inquisition could be controversial. Um, and why might it be controversial for a bunch of Dutch Reform ministers in 1618 and 1619 to be giving up a right of inquisition? Because they'd just been facing decades of the Spanish Inquisition at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, some of the fiercest persecution of Reformed people happened in Holland because it came under the dominion of Spain and Spain in 1567 sent the Duke of Alba uh, to the Netherlands to try to destroy Protestant Christianity. That was his goal in going. And it's estimated that somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 Dutch Reformed Christians were executed um, in that inquisition, including the author of the Belgian Confession. Um, it's still, I think, the only confession of the church that was written by someone who was martyred for the faith. Um, so this was, this was a real problem, right? The Spanish Inquisition. Um, and so this was relatively recent. So what did I say? What was the year? 1567. The Duke of Alva comes. Um, in 1574, William of Orange leads a revolt against Spain. If you ever wonder why everything in Holland is orange, it's because of William, the House of Orange that sort of set them free. Um, in 1588, the Spanish Armada was destroyed, which effectively broke the hold of the Spanish. I mean, the, 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 the war went on for a long time, but 1588, their, their hold was essentially broken. So, you know, do the math from 1588 to 1618, 1619, that's about as distant in history as we are from the first Gulf War, which gives you a kind of sense, if I just made you feel old, I'm sorry. Um, I saw something online the other day where someone said, somebody said 30 years ago, and I thought 1970, and they said, no, 1993. Um, they said, I felt very old. Um, so that's only as distant as the first Gulf War from us as when the Spanish Inquisition was really raging in Holland. So you can imagine this was the most debated part of the form of subscription. Do we really want to give a right of inquisition to the church? That, that the classes can come and just ask me questions um, about it? And the way they tried to protect against that kind of general inquisition in this article was to say, you can only do it upon sufficient grounds of suspicion. You have to have reason to suspect their doctrine, and you have to have the right purpose to preserve the uniformity and purity of doctrine. That this has to be a doctrinal explanation. And you have to have a reasonable grounds of suspicion that someone is doing something wrong. Right? And so what this does is say, I'm, I'm submitting to the church, but I'm not submitting, excuse me, to a general inquisition. This is only on doctrine, only if you have grounds to suspect me on an article of the faith. Um, and it's the purpose is to promote the unity and, and doctrinal purity of the church. And so even though this was probably the most debated point among the synod of, of establishing this, this form of subscription, this was deemed to be appropriate, that we should be willing, if, if we 
are suspected of going against the confessions to defend our viewpoint and show that we are being orthodox uh, so that we can continue to maintain the purity of the doctrine of the churches. So this was really a form that was established in 1618, 1619, and has been in use among Dutch Reformed churches since then. Um, and so what we saw our deacons do, what we saw Daniel Cortez do a few years ago, what I did years ago when I became a deacon, and then when I became a minister, was sign these forms of subscription. Still, when we go to classes, we, we sign the form of subscription if we've not been there before. So Elder Collins had to sign the form of subscription as a first-time delegate last time we were there. And what are we continuing to do by this subscription is show that we are committed to the doctrines as they are taught in the three forms of unity. We believe they fully agree with the Word of God. We promise to teach them. We promise to defend them. We promise not to contradict them. And should anyone become suspicious of us, we promise to answer for these things as we've committed to them before the Lord. Um, and it's a way of preserving the doctrinal purity of the church in that way. On my dad's chapter on this, he ends with an interesting comment. Don't tell him that, that was the only interesting comment, but it was an article on <laughs> subscription. Um, he said at the end, as one surveys the history of the use of the form of subscription in the Dutch Reformed tradition, one is struck by the strict character of that subscription in most of its history. You have to subscribe to all of it. Clearly, deviation from that subscription has been a sign of doctrinal and spiritual decline. Revitalization in the Dutch Reformed tradition has involved a return to the form of subscription adopted by the great Synod of Dort. And here I think is a really essential comment. Sound theology is not the only com component of a healthy church, but without sound theology, a church cannot be truly healthy. The blessing of the Lord, both in numbers and in spiritual vitality, has been present in the Dutch Reformed tradition as it has treasured, understood, embraced, and taught its great confessional documents. I think that's so crucial. Sound theology is not the only component of a healthy church. We can't think that we're healthy just because we are committed to the three forms of unity. Um, the three forms of unity teach us that there is a way God wants us to behave as well. We should be concerned for morality. We should be concerned for love. We should be concerned for spirituality. A church is not healthy just because it's sound theologically. Doctrinally sound is important. It's not the only thing. But if we are not doctrinally sound, we will not be healthy. And I think that's what we always have to be continually putting before our eyes in the church. Sound theology is not the only mark of a healthy church. So we can't think that just because we're committed to the doctrine of the three forms, we'll be healthy. Um, God is concerned about truth, but he's also concerned about love. If you have the truth and you don't have love, what are you? A banging cymbal, a banging drum or a clanging cymbal, right? Two things no one wants to hear for any length of time. Have you ever been at a soccer game where someone's banging away at a bass drum? I have. About in the 12th minute, you want to go wring the person's neck for banging on this drum. Nobody wants to hear bang, 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 bang. Over. No one wants to hear clanging cymbals over and over and over again. You want to shoot that person too. Um, why? And that's what it turns into. If all we're concerned about is truth and there's no love, that's what we'll be. We cannot pretend we'll be a sound church and healthy church just because we have sound doctrine. But by the same token, if we don't have this, we will not be healthy. And almost every time you see in our Dutch Reformed history a devolution into corruption of doctrine, 
morality, spirituality in the church, it has been part and parcel with a denial of this form of subscription. And when they wanted to return to doctrinal purity, they went back to that form and said, you need to agree to it. We need to have this be in the life of our church. Um, and that's what we're committed to as URC, to make sure this is in the life of our church, not just in the lifeblood of those of us who serve as officers of the church, but that this doctrine lives in the church for the good of the church, for the glory of our Lord, to make sure the truth is taught, defended, and, and heresies against it are, are fought against um, so that we make sure that we maintain that purity. This is a very important thing that happens in our church, a historical thing, but we don't always have time to sit and, and really talk about it. So I hope that's helpful to think about our commitment there um, and to talk about it a little bit in that way. Um, are there any questions about that? Yeah. Well, you'd have a duty to disclose it. So I think we've sometimes referred to that as the burdened brother. The brother comes under a burden that something I've agreed to is not, I can't live by it. You have to disclose that, and then you have to submit to their decision, and then that decision you have to live by. Now, we always have a right in the church to appeal to the next assembly. So if, you, if the consistory decides to do something and people in the church don't like it, you have the right to appeal to the next assembly and put that decision before them and say to the classes, this is how I feel I've been aggrieved by the consistory. And a minister would have that right as well. Um, so that would be how you would handle it. You'd need to disclose it, and you would need to let them rule on it, and then you'd need to live by that ruling. Even while you appeal it, you'd have to not teach against it. And any kind of refusal to do that, refusal to disclose, refusal to submit, in and of itself would be grounds for them saying, you're suspended from your office. Yeah. And in our churches, that can only happen by asking two other consistories to get their opinion on a suspension and make sure that three consistories agree that person ought to be suspended. I think, Cole, I saw you first. Um, is there a difference either in, like, content or degree of that first paragraph of, of the form of, form of subscription and um, the, that first membership vow that you make? Yeah, we don't require members to wholly subscribe to the confessions. They just... So it's, it would be a little different, but we, it's nuanced, so we could talk about that. Is that okay? All right. Yeah, Jacob? Yeah, um, some reform confessions that become more specific and more detailed do allow their professors to take some exceptions. So in, in a lot of Presbyterian circles, for example, you are allowed to take certain exceptions against things, I think, that don't touch on essential doctrines. So you can't, you know, take an exception on infant baptism and say, I don't agree with that, um, because that would be considered essential. But on things like, a typical one would be what the Westminster Larger Catechism says about the Sabbath. There would be people who would say, I take exceptions on the Sabbath. Um, but that has led to those kinds of struggles. What should you be able to take exceptions to? What shouldn't you? And what hap what, how do you live together if I've taken exception on the Sabbath and you haven't? You know, how do we, how do we operate together? So those create a lot of problems. So um, that's always a source of, of pride and probably smugness. I'm part of uh, Reformed people to always say to our Presbyterian friends who struggle with this, we don't have that problem because we have strict subscription. But in fairness, 
our documents are also older and less specific. So because they're less specific, there's more room there to strictly subscribe to them. Um, So in NAPARC, it tends to be Presbyterian churches that have the Westminster Standards as their confession tend to allow some limited exceptions to the standards, so not strict subscription, whereas most continental Reformed churches that are committed to the three forms of unity like us would require strict subscription. You may not take any examples, any exceptions. You agree with them because they agree with the Word of God. I don't think that was three minutes, but was that sufficient? Okay, yeah. That's typically what you find. If you're a three-forms church, you tend to require strict subscription. Um, Westminster, you're usually allowed to take some limited exceptions. Yeah. Does uh, Arminius have to sign a prescription? Yeah, he subscribed to this same, to essentially the same thing. Yeah, which was part of the problem. Because they were saying, you've, you've said that they fully agree with the word of God, but the things you sound like you're teaching your students don't seem to fully agree with what we find. So, all right, we should probably end there. So let's uh, close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the commitment we've seen to our confessional standards from our office bearers today. We pray that you would give them the grace and strength to live by those promises that all of us who promised these things would as well for the sake of the purity of doctrine and the purity of the gospel of Christ. Help us in these things, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. You're dismissed.